Welcome, friends. You are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you today. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Welcome to FCC. Today we're kicking off a springtime sermon series we are really excited about called Lemonade, How to Sweeten the Sour Seasons from the Life of Elijah in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. Now in this series, we are going to see how one of the toughest Bible characters ever, Elijah, managed to survive and sometimes even thrive during one of the sourest seasons of Israel's history, a season of national depravity and religious turmoil. Now here's a summary of what we're going to discover over the next six weeks. In the sour seasons, in seasons of frustration, oppression, depression, even isolation, Elijah trusted God, Elijah obeyed God, Elijah rested in God, and Elijah connected with others. Now some of you might say the past few years have been one of the sourest seasons in your life. In some ways, I might say it's been one of the sourest seasons of mine, but then in other ways, of course, it's been one of the most incredible seasons. It it brought me here. But think about, think about the past few years that have brought all of us here. Two years of COVID, a new civil rights movement, scary levels of inflation, And now a battle in Europe sparking fears of a third world war. We think about all these things and we might wonder, who could have predicted such things would happen to us, to our generation, to this generation? Well, funny you should ask, because I saw a headline, this was back in the fall of 2019, and the headline was commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu. Now, it caught my attention because my great-grandmother, I told you about her a few weeks ago, Grandma Punkin, she used to tell me lots of old stories, lots of stories about the olden days. Not the good old days, but the olden days. She told me stories about growing up in Oklahoma and being a preteen during World War I, stories about the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, stories about World War II, about working the farms with horses, not tractors. But she never told me anything about the Spanish flu. Known as the 1918 influenza pandemic, the Spanish flu was an unusually deadly flu that lasted from February of 1918 to April of 1920 and it infected 500 million people and that was one third of the world's population at that time. It came in four successive waves and it's possible that up to 100 million people died of the Spanish flu. Some estimates place that total as low as 20 million, but it was a lot. It was one of the biggest events of the century, but most of us, before the last couple of years, never even heard about it. 
We heard about all the other stuff that I mentioned, either from world history or from friends and family, but we didn't hear about the flu pandemic. And so I clicked on this headline commemorating the 100th anniversary of the flu. And the article attached shared all kinds of history about the flu, but then it said this, and and this is what really caught my attention. It said, throughout human history, there has been one global pandemic on average, every 100 years. And I remember thinking to myself, 100th anniversary of the global pandemic. New pandemic every 100 years. We're due for a new pandemic any day now. Wouldn't it be crazy if we had to live through a global pandemic? And then I thought, won't happen to us. And then it was just months later. We began to hear rumblings about a novel new virus in China and what seemed like mere weeks after that, we were entering into a shutdown from which we are still recovering and oh, by the way, will be recovering for many more years. And it wasn't just a pandemic that took lives. It broke marriages, divided churches, destroyed businesses, ended friendships, and further disrupted the already tenuous relationship between conservatives and progressives. Now, you've heard the old phrase, the overused phrase, so many times, when life gives you lemons, right? What do you do when life gives you lemons? All right, you make lemonade. But what about when life gives you a life-killing, health-stealing, marriage-breaking, church-dividing, business-destroying, friendship-ending, civilization-disrupting pandemic, followed by civil tension, now inflation, and perhaps even war? Let's be honest. For many, the bitterness of 2020 and 2021, and now 2022, would make lemons seem awfully sweet. And so what we wanna do with this series is we wanna discover what we can do to make lemonade out of the sour seasons of life. And here's our big idea for today. It's very simple. When life is sour, trust God. That's where we're gonna start with this series. When life is sour, Trust God. Now, for just a moment, I want you to think with me about some of the sour seasons of your life. Now, I don't generally like to dwell on the negative, and I promise we will be moving toward the positive, but let's just spend a moment thinking about some of our sour seasons. Now, I said in some ways, past couple of years, been one of the sour seasons of my life, but, but perhaps that's not your story. Perhaps you've been through harder times, And so for a moment, I would just ask you to bring some of those times to mind. Perhaps it was a season when your marriage broke up. Perhaps it was a season when you received a cancer diagnosis. Perhaps it was a season of of job loss and career realignment. Perhaps it was a tragic loss of a child or a parent or a spouse. Perhaps it was a, a tour of duty overseas. And what do you do during those sour seasons? You know, there are lots of things that people do to address the sour, self-medicate with alcohol, 
binge watch television, overeat, numb with drugs. We could go in all kinds of unhealthy directions. We could also do some positive things, eat more nutritious foods, start exercising, see a therapist, spend quality time with good friends. How about pray and read our Bibles, meditate on scripture, go to church and fellowship, worship with other believers. But I wanna point you to the first and most important thing we can do during the sour seasons, and that is trust God. When life is sour, trust God. That's the first thing I notice when I read about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 16 and 17. Elijah was a man who put his trust in God. If you have your Bibles, I wanna encourage you to go ahead and get those out. If you have Bible apps, go ahead and open those up. We're actually gonna cover a lot of ground, a lot of history today. It's a, it's a large story with a broad scope, and we're gonna try to, to make our way through a big chunk of it right now. But 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 33 says this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He also set up an altar for Baal at the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. The first thing the authors of First Kings want us to know beyond any doubt is this was the sourest season yet in the history of Israel. And they want us to know that Ahab was the absolute worst. And to reinforce that reality, they marked out three major moral errors made by King Ahab. And so if you're taking notes, this would be the, the first major moral error made by Ahab. Number one, Ahab committed the sins of Jeroboam. He committed the sins of Jeroboam. Now, if you're wondering who Ahab was, then you're probably also wondering who Jeroboam was as well. Well, Jeroboam was the first king of Israel after the kingdom of Israel divided into two separate nations. It was actually Saul who was the very first king of Israel, which was a nation made up of 12 tribes, much like the USA today is made up of 50 states. And Saul's kingdom failed, and King David replaced King Saul, and then David was succeeded by his son Solomon, and Solomon was succeeded by his son Rehoboam. Now, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel rejected Rehoboam and the line of King David as king, and they offered their loyalty instead to a man named Jeroboam. In these 10 tribes, they kept the name of Israel, while the two tribes who stayed loyal to the house of David became the nation of Judah. Judah under Rehoboam kept its capital in Jerusalem, but Jeroboam set up a new capital for Israel to the north. Now, neither of these kings were good kings. In fact, here's how 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 9, describes Jeroboam. And this, this is God speaking. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal, and you have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. That's Jeroboam. 
Then, six generations after Jeroboam, Ahab ascended to the throne. And 1 Kings 16, 31 says, Ahab considered the sins of Jeroboam trivial. Jeroboam sinned, but Ahab didn't even care about sin. That's the season they were in, in Ahab's time from being faithful, digressing to being sinful, digressing to not even caring when they sinned, digressing to trivializing sin, thinking it's not even a thing. That's how bad things were under Ahab's reign. But that's not the worst of it. Number two, Ahab married Jezebel of the Sidonians. And to illustrate the depth of his depravity, the authors of 1 Kings want us to know that Ahab was not only the most wicked king possible, but that he also married the most wicked queen possible. It was an arranged state marriage to form an alliance between Ahab and the king of the Sidonians, who was also a priest of the Canaanite god Baal. Jezebel was a Sidonian princess. Now, this was very bad because the Mosaic law, which was the law of Israel at the time, it expressly forbade marrying outside of their religion. The Israelites were only supposed to marry people who shared their faith. But Ahab, even though he was an Israelite king, he didn't care about the Israelite law. He only cared about his power. And to solidify his power, he married Jezebel, who in Revelation 2.20 became a symbol of false religion. But then, making matters even worse, when Jezebel married Ahab, she brought to Israel 450 prophets of the Canaanite rain god Baal and 400 prophets of the fertility goddess Asherah. And the result of that was yet another manifestation of Ahab's wickedness. Number three, Ahab set up the worship of Baal and Asherah in Israel. Now, Baal was the God most worshiped in the land of Israel before it became Israel. He was worshiped by the Canaanites. Baal worship was not new in Israel under Ahab, but Ahab was the first to give it official government sanction. And before Ahab, Baal was worshiped pretty regularly, essentially as the God of everyday life, things like fertility and rain, while the God of the Bible, known as Yahweh, was worshiped as the God of battle or the God of power. And so by this time, the Israelites had subtly, not officially, but subtly, subtly combined two religions into one. But when Ahab became king and he married Jezebel, they did away with Yahweh worship altogether, and they shifted the state religion to Baal and Asherah. Baal, as the god of rain, and Asherah, as the goddess of fertility, were worshipped through, and this is something you probably never learned in Sunday school, temple prostitution. The worshipers would sleep with the shrine prostitutes, believing that sexual activity in the temple would arouse Baal and Asherah to bless their crops. And they believed that the rain falling down from the heavens was believed to be evidence of their arousal. Further, 1 Kings 16.33 says that Ahab also set up an Asherah pole in Israel, which was essentially a phallic symbol to arouse the goddess. Now, as you can see, this was an especially wicked and disgusting religion, and as you can imagine, it was extremely oppressive towards women. And so, after outing Ahab for these major moral failures, and then in a clever play on of words, 1 Kings 16.33 says this, Ahab did more to arouse 
the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings before him. And that's when Elijah is introduced into the story. First Kings chapter 17, verse one says, now Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Elijah is the main character we're gonna be learning about during this sermon series. He is considered one of the true heroes of the Bible along with Moses and Jesus. In fact, there are several themes in the Bible that tie him to both Moses and Jesus. And for one, there are essentially three major miracle epics in the Bible. There are the, the miracles surrounding Moses and the Exodus, and then there are the miracles surrounding Elijah and the Baal Asherah cults, and then there are the miracles surrounding Jesus and his ministry. Another thing is Moses began in his, his ministry in the wilderness, fleeing from Pharaoh. Elijah began his ministry in the wilderness, fleeing from Ahab. And Jesus began his ministry in the wilderness, facing off against Satan. And finally, in the gospel story of the transfiguration, we see all three biblical figures meeting together. We see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. That's how important Elijah is to the biblical narrative. And yet you probably know something about Moses and something more about Jesus, but very little about Elijah. So let me share some, some things about Elijah. The verses we just read tell us he's from Tishbe, which is a village unknown to modern archaeology. And so as we read this story, it seems like Elijah just showed up out of nowhere. He showed up out of nowhere, the point being to stand up against Ahab. We also see in these verses how Elijah was sent to declare God's supremacy over Baal and Asherah. Ahab and Jezebel and those who worshiped with them believed Baal and Asherah controlled the rain and therefore the crops. And they believed that committing sexual acts in the, in the temple would arouse Baal and Asherah to water the land so the crops would produce food. And so the true God, the God of the Bible says, no, I'll show you who's in charge of the rain. And it's very similar to what God did with the plagues in Egypt. I don't know if you know this, but each of the 10 plagues connected to Moses were designed to show God's supremacy over the Egyptian gods. For instance, the plague of darkness was designed to show God's supremacy over Ra, the Egyptian god of the sun. The plague on the Nile River, the Nile River's waters were considered the bloodstream of Osiris. The plague on the river was designed to show God's supremacy over Osiris. In the same way, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah prophesies there will be neither dew nor rain in Israel over the next few years. And this coming drought would show God's judgment on Israel for abandoning true worship for Baal worship. And it would show God's supremacy over Baal and Asherah. Now, as you might imagine, this would make Elijah a wanted man in Israel. This would make Elijah a wanted man in a dangerous position for two reasons. For one, well, Elijah was speaking out against the brand new state religion, which would have been an insult to the new king and the new queen, and it would have made an enemy out of all the religious leaders. For two, Elijah said, I don't know if you noticed this, he said the drought would last until he said otherwise. Now, that was some serious authority God had given him. First Kings chapter 17, verse one, Elijah says, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years 
except at my word. And then when the drought started, lending validity to his authority as a prophet, what's going to happen? Everybody's going to want to find, want to find Elijah and force him to reverse the drought. They want to force him to call it off. And, and all of this, of course, would put Elijah in serious danger, so much so uh, that he would have to hide from King Ahab and the rest of the population until it was safe to return to Israel. First Kings chapter 17, verses two through four says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook there. And I have directed ravens to supply you with food there. Full stop, time out. Let's just consider for a moment how bizarre all of this may seem. Not just to us, but to Elijah. First of all, God speaks to him in a way that he can very clearly discern. Then God tells him to go and confront the new king and the new state religion. Then God tells Elijah he'll have the power to turn off the rain and then turn it on back again later, which is, is crazy, miraculous power. And then God tells Elijah, yeah, that's probably going to get you killed. So I'm going to have you hide in the wilderness for a few years from Ahab and the priests of Baal. And then Elijah was like, what? How am I going to survive? I want to be able to eat. And God says, oh, don't you worry about that. I'll direct the birds to bring you food every morning and every evening. And if this were you or me, what would we say? No, thanks. Send someone else. I'll pass on that one. I mean, would you trust God enough to speak out toe-to-toe, face-to-face with a king who could kill you? Would you trust God enough to stand against the prevailing spiritual climate of the nation when that climate dishonors God? Would you trust God enough to say something so offensive just because it was right to say it that you'd have to hide for years and hope that God would perform some kind of miracle of deliverance and maybe we'd be tempted to say, yeah, I'd do that. But I gotta confess, I have trouble trusting God for far less than any of these things. The first Kings chapter 17, verse five, and this is, this is our key verse for today. I've been trying to build up to this one verse. This is the key for understanding Elijah's mentality. Here's what it says. So he did what the Lord told him. Simple statement. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and he stayed there. But let me say it again. So he did what the Lord told him. And since he trusted God, he was taken care of. Verse six says, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. And this introduction to Elijah, one of the biggest and truest heroes in the entire Bible, gives us a window into what we're gonna see over the next several weeks. We're gonna see that Elijah was a man of God who stood firm for God, always stood firm even in the sour seasons. But, and I think we're gonna gain hope from this 
because he was just a man, he struggled. Like he wasn't on it all the time. He really struggled during those seasons. We're gonna see that he struggled with isolation, with oppression. Maybe you struggle with depression. So did Elijah. Seriously struggle with depression. We're even gonna see he had thoughts of, of suicide. That's how bad and dark it got for Elijah. But Elijah still trusted God and God took care of him and God worked through him. In fact, God works in pretty unbelievable miracles through Elijah, miracles that defy our understanding, miracles far outside the norms of human experience. And I just have to believe it's because of Elijah's great faith. Elijah trusted God with his life and God worked incredible things through his life. And so I wonder, and, and this is my question for you to ponder today, what do you need to trust God with right now in your life? What do you need to entrust to God? Do you need to trust God with your marriage? Is your marriage going through a sour season? What does it look like to trust God with your marriage? Do you need to trust God with your, with your money? Are your personal finances in trouble right now? What does that look like? What does it look like to trust God with your money? Do you need to trust God with your health? How's your health? Are you honoring God with your body? What does that look like? Do you need to trust God with, with, your, with your family, maybe, maybe with your kids? You know, families are really struggling right now. I've heard the, the waiting list for children to see counselors is months long. They're coming out of an incredibly difficult season. What does it look like to trust God with your family? Maybe if you still have kids at home, a next step could be to sign up for a parenting team's workshop, family team's workshop coming up. What does it look like to trust God with your family? Do you need to trust God with your sexuality? What does that look like? Do you need to trust God with your career? Maybe something's happening at work. What, is, what does that look like? What does it look like to trust God with any of, things, any of these things or all of these things? Well, here's what it looks like. It looks like Elijah making hard decisions, doing hard things, sometimes having hard conversations and saying hard things because you know it's what God wants you to do. And believing, trusting that God will make it all work out. Well, that brings us to our takeaway for today. And this takeaway is gonna get you ready for this series. In your daily time with God this week, read the story of Elijah and Ahab. Read 1 Kings chapters 17 through 22. It tells their whole story. That's six chapters if you're counting over the next six days. And if you read one chapter a day for the next six days, you'll be ready for our discussion over the next six weeks. So in preparation for this series, read 1 Kings 17 through 22 and watch, take note, look for the ways Elijah trusted God through one of the sourest seasons in Israel's history. That's our takeaway for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as many of us here have endured a rather rough, even sour season over the past few years, and as, like Elijah, we've struggled 
isolation, depression, oppression, injustice, frustration, whatever it is, Lord, help us to put our trust in you. To trust that you are with us, that you are in it with us, that you love us, that you're working all things for our good and that you long to save every single one of us through Jesus. We pray today and every day in his name. Amen. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at FCCFM.org.